0: Alright, good morning. Welcome to our uh, first series in uh, Biblical and Reformed worship. I'm determined this time to start and end on time. We'll see how that goes with the questions and everything. Uh, but I did leave like this series kind of open-ended. Uh, you know, I made the mistake last time in church membership of giving myself four or five weeks, and then all the questions came and we didn't have enough time. So, this is open-ended. We can take as many weeks as we need to. If you guys have questions, I'm sure there's going to be quite a few. We can uh, feel free to answer, ask them, and we will deal with them accordingly. So, um, let's open in prayer. Our God and Father, we do bow before you this morning, thanking you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel that we have. This is the reason that we've gathered, because of Christ to worship and adore You, to look into Your Word that we might be conformed to His image. We pray, Father, that this hour You would bless our study of Your Word, that You would give us wisdom, that You would illuminate our minds with Your truth, that Your Spirit would have free reign among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. so, basically, at least I'm going to say 8 to 10 weeks. We're going to try to kind of comprehensively deal with biblical and Reformed worship. I know a lot of you won't even be here in 8 to 10 weeks because of school, summer, all that. But I'm going to record the sessions. They're going to be online. Uh, so hopefully you'll have access to them. But what, basically, I'm calling it a biblical look at worship because we're going to use scripture as our guide. Isn't that Kind of obvious, right? We want to look into what the Word of God says about worship. And Reformed, because that's the doctrinal position of this church. We are a Reformed Baptist church. We look to the Reformed confessions when it comes to defining theology and doctrine. And so, our look at worship is going to be uniquely Reformed in many respects. And... Of course, Reformed is going to be different than some other traditions of the church. Reformed worship is unique. There is careful articulation of it in the Reformed confessions, including the 1689 Confession, which, you know, its series on worship, uh, pretty much mirrors the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Savoy Declaration. So my goal in this study is to set forth the Reformed doctrine of worship, And to demonstrate how it is supported by Scripture. So we don't want to just look at tradition, Reformed. We also want to look at Scripture. And we're going to look at, obviously, how the Reformed perspective on worship is informed by Scripture, or guided by Scripture. Ultimately, the goal to demonstrate what we do, and why we do it, here in this church. And I'm going to get into that more in just a moment to demonstrate as well that Scripture is ultimately our guide, not tradition, not preferences, not pragmatism. Our doctrine of worship must arise out of the Scripture. So basically, the plan today. Why this topic? Why here? Why now? So I'm going to just That's really to whet your appetite. Why are we even looking at this? Why are we going to study this? Then we're going to talk about kind of the importance. I'm going to make a small case for why it's important. And we'll answer this more fully as we go along. And then I'm going to outline our approach, which basically is just setting forth the next few weeks, how we're going to begin studying this topic. How do we study this topic? How do we form conclusions on worship? How do we study these questions at hand? What method uh, are we going to take? What's going to guide us as we look into these issues? So, I want to ask you, why this topic? What comes to your mind when I say the word (coughs) worship? What do you think of? Worship. What is it? Praising Praising God. Well, okay. That's good. That's right. But we can worship anything, right? Not just God. Praising, yes. Praising a God. How's that?
1: Giving glory to something.
0: Giving glory to something. Yes? Some churches use it as a
1: synonym for the singing part
0: of the service. Yes, that's a great point. It's just the singing, the worship, and then we get to the preaching. It's very, very common in our day. Just to speak of. The music as worship. In general, it's like an outward um, expression of devotion or adoration. That's good. Devotion. So it's not just an act of praise, but it's a devotion of your life. What are you giving yourself to? Oh, that guy worships that girl. You know? (laughs) Just, he has affection for her, he watches her every move, you know, he's infatuated. Worship is the idea of giving worth to something. This is something valuable. This is something that is worth my attention, devotion, affection. Alright, so let me ask you this. Nobody has anything else to say. What comes to your mind, uh, excuse me, how do you answer the question, how do you know if you've worshipped well? Is there even such a thing as worshipping well? <clears throat> if I were to ask you tomorrow, did you worship well yesterday? At church? Well, some on like the charismatic side, you get this feeling, Yeah, that's popular view again. Um, I'm not expressing that view, I'm just saying. (laughs) I don't don't agree with that, I'm just saying, that that is what someone would say, My thing. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, even though we might not go to some of the extremes as charismatic, Um, it's hard not to fall into that mode of thinking that You worship well based upon what you get out of something, right? If you had a good experience at church, if you got chill bumps, if the song and the sermon really spoke to you. But over the course of this study, I hope to subtly challenge that mode of thinking, whether in its subtle or its extreme form. Let me ask you this since nobody is brave enough to answer that question, except for Jeff. Is there such a thing as unacceptable worship in the New Covenant? It's pretty easy. Yes, Maria? I think so because there's worship that comes from a prideful heart, but it's not really worship. as just showing. Absolutely. So that's going to be the, your response to the subpoint here? Yeah. Unacceptable worship in the New Covenant. Worship that comes from a prideful heart. Very good. A broken and contrite heart is what the Lord desires, right? The psalmist says. Not the outward ceremonies of sacrifices in the Old Covenant. <clears throat> I see another hand. Kim. Um,
1: this worship that is um, based on what we think is, is is good, elements that we think fit in our culture and it may not be scriptural.
0: Could you give an example?
1: Um, this liturgy that uh, well, I'm going to we're going to add some drama to our worship um, because we think that gets across the point well. Um, that's I okay. I have an example for you. Images. A lot of cultures. It's very important to have images in front of you to help you uh, focus. Right. Yeah. the uh, Orthodox Greek Orthodox for example it's very important for them to have icons to help them focus on uh, God uh, a lot of times you have stained glass There's a lot of biblical scenes to help tell the story of the Bible to the and
0: other a lot of images absolutely and we're going to get into that yes yeah. um, so I'm getting at least agreement right that there is such a thing as unacceptable worship under the New Covenant. Right? And I say this because it might not be as obvious as, er, in this culture, this Christian culture, as it might seem. Because the prevailing notion is that as long as it's sincere, as long as you mean well and you're worshiping God, you're not worshiping something else, then God accepts your worship. I'm going to subtly challenge that. So that leads to the question, is sincerity all that matters? We know that sincerity matters. Right? Maria said it in, in respect to pride, a prideful heart, that's improper worship. Okay? So we know that sincerity matters. Sincerity, humility, brokenness before God. But is sincerity all that matters under the new covenant? What? Truth matters. Truth, truth matters. matters, yes. Jesus says, the Father is seeking worshipers, in John 4, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> exactly. And He tells the Samaritan, the woman at the well, preached on this a few months ago, you worship what you don't know. She worshiped the God of the Old Testament, she didn't worship according to Scripture and he says you don't worship you worship what you do not know ken Sir, Dr. Humphreys and Dr. Hunt could speak to that. <laughs> yeah, there's an example.
1: My students would know we had a visiting, uh, junior. Oh, yeah. <laughs> visiting a visiting cousin, is he going to come there? And he was sincerely arguing with me in class about it, that I was incorrectly explaining something. After what it was, remember? And he was it's sincerely wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I think I say that because we, we live in a culture where the church, I mean, the, 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 uh, the broad church is really picked up on casual, relaxed worship, casual, relaxed Christianity. And it's in response to some of the rigid legalism and self-righteousness of past generations. But there's this swing of the pendulum to the other side where it's almost as if sincerity is all that matters as long as, you know, somebody means right, and they're trying to do what's pleasing to God, then we just need to, you know, be quiet and not judge somebody. <clears throat> and only God can judge them, kind of thing.
1: But we don't even think God will judge them. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not just that we're not judging, it's not just like, I'm, I don't know enough to judge Him, Yeah. but God does and so He'll sort it out. Yeah. It's more like well, how could God be unhappy because this person is sincere and well meaning? So, of course, it's, it's good. Yeah. We don't even have to
0: go there. And who am I to call into question what they're doing? Yes. As if Scripture does not speak clearly on these things. All right, so I want you to think about the first four commandments when you think about the sincerity, all that matters. What are the first four commandments? Worship the Lord only. Obviously, if you worship something that's not the Lord, you're breaking a commandment. That's not worship that's acceptable. That's not, even if you're sincere in worshiping this table, um, your worship is sinful. Second commandment, idolatry is forbidden. It's what uh, Dr. Hunt spoke of. No images of worship, you're to make no carved image and bow down to it. The second commandment. So this is, we're going to get to this, but this is what Israel did with the golden calf. If you'll notice, when they worshipped the golden calf, they weren't calling it another god. They fashioned a golden calf and said, Yahweh, our Lord who brought us out of Egypt. They wanted a visual depiction of God. They wanted something that they could really get their hands on. Not just an abstract, oh, there's a god out there, but something here and now that I can devote to. And that, you know, it wasn't a breaking of the first commandment. They were breaking the second commandment. And of course, I'm going to argue as we go on that this this continues on in our day as well. Many things are propped up in the name of God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that violate the second commandment and the third commandment. Even though they claim to worship the right God, even though they are sincere in doing so. Third commandment. The manner, the attitude of worship. Maria hit on this. Pride. Um, Esteeming His name. You know, this is not taking the Lord by God's (laughs) name in vain. This isn't just, you know, um, explanatives or, you know, cursing. The primary reference of the third commandment is honoring and esteeming God's name. Whatever you put, attach His name to. Whenever you invoke His name, that it's invoked with reverence. When we gather today in the Lord's name, there is a way in which we can violate the third commandment without ever... Saying a G.D. or whatever, it's, it's more about the attitude of what we're attaching God's name to. So, first three commandments deal with worship. But then again, the fourth one does as well. Weekly worship. There's a calendar. There's a specific time frame for worship. We don't just... We'll get into this. <laughs> this is going to be fun. But it regulates our worship. As a weekly pattern. So the first four, before we ever even get to how we treat our neighbor, the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. They deal, in some respect, with our worship. And so, there's more to worship than just sincerity. We ought to strive to ensure that we worship well again that's why we're doing this study so we can know what it means to worship well and that we can strive for that acceptable acceptable biblical worship in spirit there's the sincerity also i would say that jesus also hits on john 4 that it's worship in the holy spirit which means it's saturated with the word in spirit and in truth in accordance to scripture All right, why this topic? <coughs> Seems like no issue is more divisive in churches today. And trust me, I know this as a church planner. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and have, you know, had issue with something we do in worship or the way we do it. You could really build a church if you would just do this. Trust me. If you would just change this, you're so rigid on this, people would really come. I won't come to your church because I don't like the music. I've heard it several times. To so our worship team. Uh, no, no,
1: <laughs> no pressure. Right?
0: Worship team. See, there, I, I used it again. <laughs> Musicians. <laughs> So, worship wars in the church today, you're all familiar with them. We have, okay, split services, traditional and contemporary, because these have really, you know, become worship wars are, are real. They're significant divisions and disagreements in the church. You have churches saying, okay, well, we're going to try to appease everyone, so we'll have a traditional and then we'll have a contemporary. And I don't know if we'll get into this in great detail, but it's an ironic way to split the church that's what it does you have two different churches You have people who prefer one way they don't worship together and a lot of problems come from that again we're not going to jump into that i don't want to throw anybody under the bus uh, but split services because of worship wars we have disagreements in music styles we have disagreements in liturgy what is liturgy that's old-fashioned that's that's Roman Catholic. That's rigid. That's cold. That's dead. That's lifeless. That lacks the spirit. We have disagreements on who can lead in worship. Who can read scripture? Is it permissible for women to read scripture, the public reading of scripture? Can just anyone lead in worship? I, uh, Coming out of seminary, I had an opportunity to—I don't want to say the place. Um, <laughs> this is going online, uh, but I had an opportunity before me. A church um, was—I was candidating at. Uh, essentially, they had a—they were a Baptist church, but they had a Presbyterian who was not a member leading all of their worship and liturgy. And they asked me, "Okay, if you're coming into this, would you have a problem with this?" And you know, I certainly didn't, you know, wasn't going to say, oh, this is horrible, and, and um, you guys are have left the faith. But it was something that I said, well, you know, uh, when I if I come in there, that's something I'm going to work to change. He can join the church, or we need to get somebody else up there. Somebody who's actually part of the church, not a member of another church, leading worship, and then walking out to go to his church. Um, so of course in the, the seeker sensitive movement they, the 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 uh common practice now is to hire outside musicians they don't even have to be christians just a good band jazz band rock band whatever to come and do the music they hang out in the green room and uh don't even listen to the sermon a lot of times i used to uh I know one of the a guy that that was hired by churches to do that. Yes?
1: I noticed in England, they have these very traditional looking and sounding boys' choirs. You know, it's very lovely. But then you watch them during the rest of the service and they're reading magazines or comic books. Wow. I mean, they're standing there you know, where you can see them and they choir robes. Wow. And, you know, and then when the music starts up, they close it up and they, you know, they focus on singing and being a good musician. Yeah. And then when it's over, they take the magazine or the comic book back out. Wow. And, and they get their tuition that.
0: It, You know, that, that raises a good point. I um, Certainly you're going to hear from me in this series that, you know, an argument against um, having a full band on stage and um, making the music about an experience. But I want to make it clear that it's not just the, the rock band that I believe is irreverent and misdirects our focus in worship, but it could also be a choir, a symphony, yeah. traditional music as well, is and uh, can and often is used inappropriately. Yeah. Excuse me.
1: A hard attitude is part of it.
0: Yeah, exactly. These guys,
1: yeah. with their hard attitude, have been fine. I think their music probably would have been fine. Uh, yep. A lot of it was in Latin, so I couldn't really understand it. So, uh, you know, maybe. Well, there's <laughs> a problem.
0: <laughs> but, uh, Reformation. But, but, but
1: probably it was fine, other hmm. than their hard attitude.
0: So for the sake of peace, for the sake of truth, for the sake of unity in our church, it's important that we hold objective, defendable, scriptural reasons for what we do in worship. That's why this topic. To promote unity in our church. To give you justification from scripture for what we do and why we do it so that you know i'm not just making this up on the fly that we're not just doing things in worship because it's our tradition because it's our preference so that you know where we get this from scripture so if you think this topic is you know straightforward consider these questions and this is again whet your appetite here Lots of questions, you probably won't have time to write them all down, but what is worship? Let's define it. We're going to look at that. Does the Bible tell us how to worship? Again, some of this we already talked about. Are there right and wrong ways to worship God? Is sincerity the only thing? We talked about that. Is all of life worship? Hmm. Hmm, wow, interesting. Is all of live worship, is there any difference between public worship and private worship? Thank you, Jeff. See some smirks. Is there anything special about... Corporate worship. What is the regulative principle of worship? <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's funny, I, I offer my Christian mind class and essay topics to work on, groups and one of them is technology and worship, and about three times out of four, the group that goes on and I say, by the way, there's this thing called the regulative principle. I looked at their draft and I'm like, there's this thing called the regulative principle. Here's a link to to the description. And you need to work this into your paper. I'm like, if you want to disagree with it or say it's wrong, I'm happy to read your argument and judge it on whether it's it's a well-developed argument. But I need you to not just pretend this isn't here.
0: (laughs) My Speculation would be that most incoming students probably would disagree with it. And I find that most most disagree with it because they're not familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. And it sounds like something that would stifle worship rather than enhance it. But the question needs to be asked, what is it? Does it regulate public worship and private worship or one or the other? Um, if we answer this question, if all of life is worship, then how does that relate to the regular principle of worship? Those things are connected, right? So there's, there's a lot there when we talk about the regular principle of worship. What are the means of grace? What do they have to do with worship? Means of grace, that sounds dated, right? Right? Uh, is there a prescribed day of worship? Again, we're not, uh, you know, we're, we're not scared of diving into the controversial issues here. These are questions we're going to be answering, by the way, in the, in the coming weeks. Is there a prescribed day of worship? Can we just have worship on Saturday night? I mean, it would free up my Sunday.
1: Calvin said, sure.
0: No, I would I would disagree with that strongly. Sunday's
1: just another day. No, he did not. No, no, no. That's all that Jewish Old Testament says right
0: up here with sacrificing an ox. Yeah, I can uh, I can have some I have some good book recommendations on that. Calvin's view on the supper is I mean on the supper, on the on the on the, uh, on the Sabbath is uh, notoriously controversial. And he's not, I'll admit, he does not take the Westminster Confession view, or the London Baptist view. But he does not take the view that every day is just the same. He thinks for pragmatic reasons uh, that Sunday is the day of worship. Not for, um, he doesn't believe it's a part of the moral law of God. God, He believes that it is a good and necessary inference, inference, and that He still holds it Sunday is the day of worship and the the shop should be closed. But he stops short of saying this is uh, connected to the fourth commandment. We can get into that. I can send you some sources. (laughs) No,
1: that's
0: okay. (laughs) (laughs) How often must we or should we gather for worship? So the question is, okay, can we have Friday night worship? Can we have Saturday night worship instead of Sunday? We're going to talk about that. But not only that, but do we have to have it every week? I mean, I'm, pre- I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty busy guy. I, can we just have worship every two weeks? Can we just have worship once a quarter? Once a month? Why do we have to have it every week? That seems rigid. That seems just tradition. See, so this is the kind of questions we get into when we talk about, does God regulate the regularity of our worship? Four question: Should we fashion our worship services to aim for evangelism? Exactly. Well, we want unbelievers to be comfortable. That's why we bring in the band. That's why we dress in jeans, right? That's why, whatever, we're casual, we're laid back, we're cool. We're trying to cultivate an environment where unbelievers are comfortable. Which, again, I'm, I'm not going to argue against that at all. I think we should expect unbelievers to be present in our worship services. We see that in the New Testament. But it's amazing, in the New Testament, when this happens, in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say? The unbelievers, struck in in the heart by their reverence for God, and he says, truly, God is in this place. God is among you. So, but we're going to talk about that. What exactly should we do in worship? This is liturgy. Let me just get it out of the way now. Every church has a liturgy. Every single church. Some of it have it on paper like we do, and it's very formal, and you can see the connections and the flow. Others, they just do whatever, but they still have a liturgy. They still have an order that they follow. They do certain things for certain reasons. So we need to ask, what are we going to do? What exactly should we do? In liturgy. All right. Uh, Oh, more questions. Okay. Was the proper attitude of worship? Should worship chiefly be joyful? Is that the characteristic of biblical worship? Joyful above everything else? Again, questions that we're going to answer. Feel free to pipe up, though. Should it be exciting? Inspiring? Evangelistic, sentimental, reverent, serious, experiential. What I want to hit at, uh, uh, answer, is what should be the chief attitude of worship? That's what I'm trying to hit at. Not that, you know, some of these things might all be present at one time or another, but what is the chief attitude, the central attitude of worship that we should strive for? Should we seek to make it joyful? Is that the characteristic that should most define our worship? Or is it should be, some, should be something like reverence, or something sincere, or something inspiring? We're gonna talk about what the chief attitude, because we see joy in the Psalms, right? Praise God with loud crashing cymbals, right? What is going on in worship? What do we mean when we say that God is specially present in worship, and how does this affect things? That's going to be a central point of discussion. Now, I don't know how much we're going to get into this, but I've I've got to put it down. (laughs) Come on, i see you guys. What about the charismatic gifts? Tongues, prophecies,
1: healings.
0: (laughs) We are going to touch on that briefly. Why not? This is concerning worship. We look at 1 Corinthians, it seems like Paul is saying, okay, speak in tongues, but no more than two or three, right? Others way would have said, We'll talk about that. What about music? Is music style neutral? Do only the words matter? Not the tune? Not the style? Is music simply a matter of personal preference or culture? Should we adapt our music according to the culture that we're trying to plant a church in? It's a legitimate question. Tim Keller essentially says yes. Is he right? Are all styles suitable for public worship, depending upon only on the culture? Should worship music be traditional only, or contemporary, or both, a mixture of both? We're going to talk about music style, and we're going to try to answer those, these questions. What about special music, solos? Are there any forbidden instruments? You, you may laugh, but I, I mean, I grew up in a church context where drums were evil. <laughs> drums were of the devil. If there was a rock beat, it was tapping into the occult. Do we have any scriptural justification for forbidding drums? The answer might surprise you. <laughs> see, I'm trying to whet your appetite. See, see. Is it permissible to take a secular tune and substitute it for Christian lyrics? We don't see too many churches <laughs> with heavy metal bands doing worship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Calvin and Luther both said, uh, said ah, uh. <laughs> it's an urban.
0: it's an urban legend, well, at least Luther saying that is an urban legend, I've not been able to find it, substitute bar tunes for uh, lyrics, yeah. I, I would tend to think it's probably true, but I, I've nev- never seen, I've heard it's an urban legend, but is it permissible, we're going to talk about that. All right, so why this topic in order to answer these types of questions? I know you guys have these questions and many more questions. So that's why we're going to study this issue and we're going to talk frankly about these things. And I want you to take your best shot. All right, the importance of this topic and we have, we're going to end at 10.20, so we have 10 minutes. Alright, why is this topic important? I've already hit on some of this, so I can move a little uh, quicker here. Uh, given the divisiveness and confusion in our day, it's important to think biblically. To know what we believe and why we believe it. To not just show up and say, this is how we've always done things and this is what the pastors decided to do. But to be able to look at the Word of God and say, okay, I understand why we're doing this. I understand why we're following this liturgy. I understand, out of our view of worship, what we're doing and why. If God is the object of our worship, wouldn't it make the most sense that He is the one who tells us how to worship and what pleases Him? I mean... It's a profound statement in our day and age, even as obvious as it may be on the surface. God is receiving our worship. It would seem to make sense that He would then tell us what pleases Him, since we know that there are things that don't please Him. Has He spoken on worship in His Word? We believe that He has. And that's why this topic is important. Worship, what we do and how we do it, should not be simply a matter of arbitrary choice. This is what we're most comfortable with. Church tradition, this is how we've always done it. Personal preference, well, this, I like this the best because it has this result. Or cultural appeal. Oh, we're going to go down in the city and, and... And reach the millennials, So we have to have worship that's catered to their preferences. I'm going to argue it is not God honoring to simply do things out of mere opinions and preferences. Anybody can just choose for themselves. Whatever works for you. That's good for you. You have the traditional worship. Yes. We're going to have the contemporary. It's good for you. But we're going to do something completely different. I'm going to argue that... We ought not to base our worship simply on preferences. Has He spoken in His Word? I'm going to argue as well, it is not God honoring to do something because that's how we've always done it. Tradition. We're not going to ruffle any feathers here. We're not going to make waves. This is how this church has always done it. So we're going to do it. And I'm going to argue it's not commendable, it's not God-honoring, to hold to and enforce the doctrines of men. I want to give you a brief example of this from Matthew chapter 7. Uh, let's see if I read all of this. Matthew 7, 1-13. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase here. The Pharisees and the scribes, verse 1 here, saw that Jesus and his disciples ate with hands that were unwashed. They did not follow the tradition of the elders. Jewish tradition, essentially, that they cleansed themselves from defilement to make sure, in case they touched anything that was, you know, a Gentile, that a Gentile had touched in the marketplace, they would never eat until they washed their hands. And Jesus, in response, says to them, Isaiah prophesied about you hypocrites. That's not working. I'm supposed to have a... There we go. Isaiah prophesied about you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines, the commandments of men. The Pharisees had their traditions of worship. They held others captive to them. Jesus says, in vain do they worship me. Okay, they're worshiping the right God, but it's in vain. It's unacceptable. It's pointless. It stirred the wrath of God. Worship of the true God in the wrong way stirred the wrath of God. And Jesus thus affirms that to establish a tradition of man and hold other people to it is to, quote, reject the commandment of God. That is, they made void the Word of God, he says, by their tradition that they handed down. So why is tradition bad? Because it always replaces something from the Word of God. I should qualify that statement as... Tradition in the sense of something that's not found in scripture. So it's important that we're biblically informed on the who, the what, and the hows of worship from God's word. So that we avoid sinning against God. And sinning against others. By making people, when they come into our worship service, do things that are not grounded in the word of God. That's a subtle argument for the regular principle. Sorry. (laughs) But that's why this, uh, this, this topic is important. So that we don't commit the sins of the Pharisees. Finally, why is this an important topic? Because worship is central to a church's calling. Everything else that we do as a church flows out of our worship. If there isn't unity in worship, there's not going to be unity anywhere. Worship is the fountain in which everything else in the church, community, discipleship, evangelism, service, all of these things flow out of a church's worship. It is central to everything that we are about. And it is central to, here, discipleship. It is central to our fulfilling the Great Commission. Worship is central and is is, is the ultimate reason why we exist, both as creatures, to worship the One who created us, but also as new creatures in Christ, which we'll talk about more in the coming weeks, if you remember that Peter talks about that we've been chosen, we've been called, we're a royal nation to proclaim the excellencies of Him who brought us from darkness to light. So it's central, central to a church, it's central to your Christian life. That's why it's important. All right, we're going to close with this. How do we approach this topic? This is really what we're going to hit on next week. How do we study it? How do we answer these questions? Well, a few presuppositions. Scripture is our final rule of faith and practice. It's pretty obvious. Well, maybe obvious to you. Maybe not obvious to everyone in our culture. But Scripture is full, the final rule of faith and practice. No, the New Testament doesn't give us a liturgy. It doesn't speak real specifically on how exactly we are to hold worship services. So we're going to approach this. Yes, Scripture is our final rule and authority. But we've got to approach it theologically as well. I hope you understand what I mean by that. I'm going to make a case for this next week. In fact, even in the sermon today, I'm going to mention how heretics always stress the literal, literal, wooden literal interpretation of scripture they refuse to do theology it's like the uh, the sadducees who said there is no resurrection and jesus says he's not the god of the dead but the living the god of abraham the god of isaac the god of jacob jesus is doing theology they were stressing the literal heretics always stress the literal and so we got to approach this theologically scripture though is fully sufficient and fully is complete in order to fully equip us. So we're going to approach it from Scripture, is our final rule in practice. We're also going to approach it from this idea of the doctrine of God. Who is God? That helps define our worship. That's how we approach it theologically. We understand who God is. It helps us understand how to worship Him, this creature, creator, distinction. Also, we've got to talk about the doctrine of man. Who is God? But also, who, who are we? If we're going to understand worship, we've got to understand those things. Right? Who are we? Who is God? We also have to understand the doctrine of Christian liberty in the gospel. Again, this is what we're going to jump into next week. So I can't talk about it now. But we also uh, finally have to talk about the, do- excuse me, the doctrine of the church and the doctrine of the gospel. These things inform our worship too. This is how we study the issue, scripture, but also theologically, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christian liberty, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the gospel, because ultimately. All of these things affect our doctrine of worship. Nothing just falls out of the sky. They're connected to these things. So, we're going to approach the specific passages on worship from the foundation of these core doctrines of the faith and how they inform, how they guide us, how they lead us into a scriptural view. All right. Any questions or any closing comments? Wow, you're all convinced. This is great. This is going to be easy. All right, let's close in prayer. Our God and Father, we do thank you that you have spoken, that we're not left to our own opinions, our own imaginations, but... Lord, You've given us Your Word, and not just Your Word that's external, but You've given us Your Spirit. Your Spirit which is internal, which guides us into truth, which writes Your Word upon our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would indeed submit to Your Word, that You would lead us into truth, and that You would glorify Your name and Your church through our study of this issue in the coming weeks. Lord, we also pray that You would prepare us even now Uh, to now go and gather and worship and praise and adore you as the God deserving of all of our devotion, our love, and our worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.